This coming week, on Thursday, Americans will celebrate Thanksgiving. And uh, Thanksgiving is probably my favourite form of celebration, because it combines three of my favourite things. The first, and by far the most important, is massive amounts of overeating. The second one, and this closely is tied to the first, is about 18 hours of then doing absolutely nothing. Have you ever seen a picture of a snake that's like swallowed a goat whole or something like that? You can't move afterwards. And then after 18 hours or so, just a little bit of Christmas shopping. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, in the UK, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving, but we can understand it because it's the same as our Harvest Festival. I took this photograph a few weeks ago when we had the celebration of Harvest, and we bring the produce uh, into church to give thanks for God's provision. That's really the basis of Thanksgiving. We're thanking God for his goodness, for his faithfulness, and his provision to us. So our tradition is that we bring the produce into church, and it's arranged at the front here. The Americans have a different term for this collection of produce. They call it an appetizer. This would be just the start, if you like, of what you would have. You don't just bring it to offer it. You bring it to consume it, to eat it. So if this is just the appetizer, imagine eating all of this, followed by a full Christmas dinner, turkey and all the trimmings you can imagine, and then a few involving pecans and cranberries and these croissants that you use to kind of mop it all up with afterwards. So imagine two Christmas dinners, or in fact, just imagine all the Christmas dinners you've ever eaten, all rolled into one, and then a little bit more. It's fantastic. And it's fantastic for a reason, really, because... It's quite a simple celebration. There's no cards you have to go out and send. It's just food. There's no gifts you have to give or pretend you enjoyed receiving. It's just food. And we all enjoy receiving food. The stores are all closed. There's nothing you can really do. It's just about food. Well, food, if I, just in case I didn't mention that, and family... You see, in the U.S., there are some phenomenal distances that separate some of the families, but because you have Thanksgiving on a Thursday and then another holiday on the Friday and a two-day weekend, over those four days, families can come from great distances and come together. So you have this celebration surrounding, surrounded by all of this food and provision from God and surrounded by your family and those you love. And in that presence, it's very easy to draw near to God and to give thanks to him for the things that are important. And Americans have been doing this for some 400 years. It's become part of Americana, a very American-associated festival. But it's really about the goodness and provision of God. They tie it into the Pilgrim Fathers and say this is part of the provision to them for safe passage on their journey, for surviving those pioneering settlement days when it was not certain you would survive from one winter to the next. And so those early pilgrims came together and started a festival which has been celebrated for 400 years. It's recognised as officially starting in 1622, where it's recorded that Edward Winslow and the community around him celebrated this festival. This is what he wrote. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men fowling, that means hunting for birds, we now eat turkey, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labor. These four in one day killed as much fowl as served the company almost one week. 
the Indians came amongst us, and their great king, along with some ninety men, went out and killed five deer, which they bought, and for three days we entertained and feasted. And although it may not always be so plentiful as it was at this time with us, and you can nod off after this bit, because this is the sermon in a sentence. It's thanksgiving in a single phrase. By the goodness of God, we are far from want. That's what thanksgiving is all about. But really, if I'm honest, my sermon's not about what happens on Thanksgiving. It's about what happens in just one brief moment. Because something happens the day after Thanksgiving. By the goodness of God, we are far from want. Is followed by a day known as Black Friday. Thanks, Cliff. absolutely clear, these people are not starving. Just 12 or so hours ago, they ate more food than you can possibly imagine. So they're not refugees, they're not starving, they're not running from a fire or a flood or an earthquake. The previous day, remember, they came together with their family and they prayed that by the goodness of God, we are far from want. And then comes a day known in America and now sort of around the world as Black Friday. It's the day America goes shopping. Because having given thanks, their mind turns to Christmas. Although there wasn't really much, I would say, of the Christmas spirit about what you saw in that film. In 2009, a woman was crushed to death. And it took about an hour before the ambulance or anyone could reach her because people just kept coming and coming, and they just ran over the top of her and kept on coming. So it's that tension between drawing close to God and giving thanks to him, and then getting just spun around by the chaos and the temptation of the world into which Paul is speaking in our passage this morning. And we talk in churches sometimes, don't we, about spiritual warfare, and it seems a little bit airy-fairy, it seems a little bit difficult to get a hold of, 
And that's why I wanted to share that clip. I know the pictures aren't very good because they're taken on camera phones and the sound is difficult to listen to. But in that moment, it's possible to understand the sheer madness that overwhelms people when they're driven not to run away from something, but to run towards all of these things that they want, that at that moment that they need, that they're willing to fight for. And we're driven there by the most cynical exploitation of our human character, of our human need. And I'm not just talking about America. If you go shopping in Sainsbury's and Hayward Seeds, do you know where the bread is? The furthest place in the shop. Because they know that's what most people have come there for. Now, They've changed a little bit, but one of the first things when you come in is the vegetables. Because they're one of the cheapest things, and you're less likely to impulse buy a vegetable than anything else. Now, this has changed. Now they have some sandwiches and some newspapers for people who just want to pop in, grab, and go. But the reason the vegetables are there is because in, they know, because they've researched your minds, that you are less likely to impulse buy in those first few aisles that you come to. So everything... This is not just a spiritual battle, this is an arms race of money. People are spending hundreds of millions of pounds to advertise to us. There's a marketing phrase for it, it's called manufactured need. Something you didn't know you wanted and needed until they sold it to you. <laughs> Friends, these people are deliberately robbing you of your contentment so they can sell it back to you. In fact, they won't sell you the contentment. They'll lease it to you for 12 easy payments of $29.99. And then they'll take it from you again and again and again. It's the most cynical and the most obvious and perhaps the most damaging form of spiritual warfare. And we're not making this up because you'll see it on every high street. You'll see it represented in the balance sheet of every single retailer. And you know the reason it's called Black Friday? It's because it's the period when the results of those stores go from red to black. Those stores have to make that money between Black Friday and New Year's Day because it's the only time of the year they will turn a profit. And come January, you'll know if we had a good Christmas season because you'll hear about Boots or WH Smiths or HMV going bankrupt in January if they don't start to turn a profit on Black Friday. It matters that much. And so there is this arms race ranged against our contentment that says they can't keep you at thanksgiving because if you're close to God and content, you won't spend any money. So into the face of this manufactured need, Paul tells us not what we want, not what the retailers want, but what God wants. And he gets excited as he shares it. And he shares it often as he writes to churches, as he preaches, and he speaks to people. This sense of deep spiritual contentment. It's not only possible, he says, but it's desirable. And more importantly, it is the desire of God. So instead of what I want for Christmas. And you know, Zoe asked me that the other day. She thinks I'm terribly difficult to buy for. Which is strange, because I find myself very easy to buy for. But she was asking me what I want for Christmas. And I don't really know. I'll think of something. But let me show you what I am absolutely certain God wants. He wants you to find this contentment. And Paul wants it as well. He shares it with this, well, 
this group of church, the Philippians, this rarest of modern-day commodities, a bunch of wealthy Greeks, who knew? He writes to them because this is part of a thank-you letter. The first three and a bit chapters are all him joyfully sharing with them news and tidings. But he begins and ends with this thanks. They have made generous provision for him. And he, in return, shares two things, basically, through this chapter that we're looking at in chapter 4. Firstly, his thanks is poured out to them. But then he makes it quite clear that he's not thanking them because he needed the money, but because of their generosity. And there's a whole lot of technical financial language towards the end of the piece where he talks about balance sheets and accounting and invoices and settlement. But what he's saying to them is, I want to give you back this gift of contentment. Because this is the the pinnacle of his spiritual maturity. It's a secret, he says. The Greeks loved these secrets and mysteries. Now, because I'm good at marketing, I'm not going to tell you the secret until the very end. So like the bread at the back of the supermarket, you're going to have to listen if you want to hear Paul's secret. Let's first of all tease you with some vegetables. For when I am weak, says Paul, I am strong. Paul writes continuously about this subject, that in emptying himself, he surrenders to the strength of the Lord. And it's in that space that he finds contentment. I love that first reading from 2 Corinthians. It's one of the most passionate outpourings of the Bible. We don't read it very often in church because it's such a strange, such a passionate unfolding. This list of beatings and all of the other stuff that happens. If my memory works, we'll come back to that in a minute. But right afterwards, that was chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, in the teeth of all of that, in the face of all of it, for the sake of Christ then, I am content. And again, in 1 Timothy, he writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these then we will be content. Now it is important that he sets that baseline, because studies and books you can go out and buy on happiness say that there is no correlation at all between the amount of money you earn and how happy you are. And that's true, but only above a certain point. It's actually a very low point. Above about sort of 7,000, 10,000 pounds a year, the amount of money you earn has zero correlation with your happiness. But Paul points out that as long as you have food and clothing, with those you can be content. So what's the nature of this contentment he's talking about? In the clip that we saw and in the world that surrounds us, the world that tells us to want and to want and to want, it is that our contentment is dependent on our circumstances and our success. It's a dependent form of contentment. My mother had a phrase, and I was worried sharing this with the first service, but apparently other people's mothers had it. My mother used to say, I want, don't get. Did your mother say that, or did you say that to to people? I want, don't get. You don't hear that anymore. If you watch the television now, what you see on X Factor or even Strictly Come Dancing is, I want this so much. The modern mantra is the person who wants it the most deserves it. The person who wants it the most will get it. 
And it used to frustrate, frustrate me when my mother would say, I wants, don't get. And I had to learn. And now I won't ever say, it's been trained out of me, that I want something. I say, I would like something. But I think what she taught me is what Paul is trying to teach us here, which is that the modern world says, yes, if you want something enough, maybe you can get it. Maybe that's some aspiration that you have. But it's the attitude of wanting which is the problem. Because wants are slippery things. They're like a mirage in the desert. The faster you run towards them, the faster they move away. So the problem with wanting and not getting is that you'll never reach the end of the wanting. You'll want one thing, and when you get it, you'll want another. And if you don't change this attitude of wanting, you will never reach the end of your wants. You'll never exhaust them, you'll never outrun them, you will never satisfy them. So Paul says that we cannot be dependent on our circumstances. But he's also preaching to a bunch of Greeks who wanted to be independent of their circumstances. You see, the Greeks he spoke to actually had a little philosophical phrase that he's echoing here. They would talk about being able to be content in any circumstance. That's what Paul is picking up on. It's their own teaching of wisdom. And they had these people called Stoics. We use that expression about people. I think we have lots of Stoics in the church. Have you met them? They have terrible suffering. But they're stoical about it because in their own strength and in their own righteousness, they're bearing through. And they had these other people called the Cynics. We have a few of those sometimes in churches as well. And the cynics were stoical to a fault. They actually celebrated their suffering. They demonstrated by suffering and having as little as possible, as often as possible, and having as miserable a time as possible. And this, this is how the church often portrays itself. Come here and be miserable. For in our misery we will demonstrate our sin. Paul speaks to the cynics, to the stoics, and although he didn't know it, to the modern-day consumers. That's what you are, by the way. You're not a citizen anymore. I love all this stuff about the debt. Our debts would be paid if only we were better consumers, if only we consumed more. Please don't be a stoic, a consumer, or a cynic. Because the consumers are dependent on stuff. But perhaps more dangerously, the stoics and the cynics are independent and dependent only on themselves. You see, the reason the Greeks loved it was because by being a Stoic, you showed that you were so wise, so strong, and so inwardly independent that you could rise above the wants of this world. And Paul takes their language and twists it on its head and says, I am not content by being independent. I am being content because I am dependent, completely dependent on the strength, on the riches, and the glory of God. He turns their psychology, he turns their philosophy on its head. And he says, I have learned in whatever situation that by the provision, by the strength, and by the glory of God, I can be content. Not because I am independent, not because I've reached the end of my needs and wants. Now, the biggest encouragement to me of this whole thing 
Because it's easy to stand up here and say something, but it's far, far more difficult to pull this into your life. And it's great that Paul says, look what he says, I have learned. He doesn't say, I met Jesus and this fell upon me. He doesn't say, I was just praying one day and it just came to me like that. He doesn't say it's easy. He says this is a spiritual form of maturity. And that's where the two Corinthians reading comes in. If you're sitting there thinking, that's all very well for Paul because he was super, super spiritual, but I'm not like that, then Paul doesn't say, this is because I'm super spiritual. Now, there is a form of contentment, I believe, that comes over you, and I don't mean to belittle anybody's testimony. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself, there is a contentment, there is a peace that comes over you. But to be able to say, I am content in any and every situation, Paul is not saying that that is a glib and an easy thing that just descends upon you from heaven every moment of every day. He says, I have struggled and I have learned. I have been tempted and I have tried and I have learned. So I want to encourage you that contentment is not just some innate part of a super spiritual Christian experience. There's a secret to it. Perhaps we'll do that secret now. It's not an MI5 type secret that I have to sign a document before I can tell you about. It's not a Cosmo magazine type seven secrets of looking thinner or having better skin. You see, this wanting stuff, by the way, I'm going to get distracted now, this wanting stuff goes far beyond money. Dangerously far beyond money because money somehow you can work towards. But you can't stop young people wanting to be older because they want to move through their life and achieve things. And you can't stop older people wanting to be younger. You can't stop short people wanting to be tall. Or people like me wishing we were a little bit shorter. Or people on X Factor who want to be famous. Or people who want to be powerful. So what is Paul's secret? It's not a Greek philosophy. It's not a religious doctrine. It is about dependency. Thanksgiving is drawing close to God, being dependent on him. And the closer we are to God, the further we are from our wants. And the more we turn towards our wants, the further we find ourselves from God. That's what happens in that moment, in that midnight minute, when the day of Thanksgiving turns to Black Friday. It's demonstrated best. Can we have a second video, Cliff? And I'll probably talk all over it because we'll, I've promised people I won't run over time today. This is a video about a marshmallow. It's about a marshmallow and a group of five-year-olds. This video was, was shot a few years ago. We showed it in church uh, right, about one year ago. And all we're going to do is put in front of each wait, of these young people I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. So these young people have 15 minutes alone in a room with one marshmallow. If they cannot each eat the marshmallow in 15 minutes, they'll be given a second one. That's all there is to it. I'm going to go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. It smells really good.
it's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> that video is three minutes long, so they did have to stare at that for five times that amount of time. The, the, the experiment was first done in the 60s, and they followed up the children to see what happened between the children who ate the marshmallow and the children who didn't eat it. And this is where the comedy of that video dries up a little bit because the kids that ate the marshmallow did worse at school, fewer of them went to university, more of them became addicted to drugs, alcohol, or had problems with overeating. They have a higher, a much higher incidence of divorce and other family breakdown. So the psychologists looked at what was the difference between the children who ate the marshmallow and the children who didn't. And the difference was this, and this is Paul's secret. The kids who ate the marshmallow, if you watched them, were focused, were just staring at the marshmallow. The kids who didn't, at least in the original experiment, were observed instead to watch the door where the researcher had gone from. You see, we have a choice as we get spun around by the, by the world around us. Do we focus on our immediate wants, on our immediate needs? Do we stare at the marshmallow, sniff it, lick it, touch it? Because eventually we won't last 15 minutes alone with just a marshmallow. But the secret, the researchers said, is to focus on the door. Is to focus on the promise, not the present. And that's what Paul is saying. Our secret is to focus not on our present wants, but on our future promise. To focus on the door where Christ has said, I will come again. To focus on his provision, on his promise to us. And then we can, like the children in the clip, resist for 15 minutes, for 15 years. And there we can find contentment. The secret is, to focus on the pre is to not to focus on the present, but to instead focus on the promise. To keep in mind and in sight always his provision, his strength, and his glory. Now I have a, another visual aid for this which I really struggled with and secretly practiced with at home to see if I could do, but I can't. It's a lesson we can gain from ballerinas. 
You see, this thing about Thanksgiving and Black Friday sounds all very American, but the fact is this. It's easier for us to feel like this on a Sunday morning than on a Monday morning. Because as we come into church and we draw close to God, it's easier for us to think about contentment than it is when we all start to get spun around and caught up in the frenzy of work or a social life with Christmas coming up. Just Monday coming, goodness me, I've been to Ikea on a Sunday afternoon straight from church. It can end, your peace can come to an end that quickly. You can lose sight that quickly. So I have this vision and I can't act it out. I tried it, but I can't. Have you ever seen a ballerina who can survive that tumble dryer experience of the Monday morning? Have you ever seen a ballerina who can spin and spin and spin and spin? And unlike me, if I was to do it, I would grow dizzy, I would grow weak, I would feel sick and I would fall over. But a ballerina can do that because they're able to do a thing called spotting. Spotting is where you fix your eyes on something. And so I'll turn my back on you and I'll fix my eyes upon the cross. And with my eyes fixed there, I can spin and I can spin. And the world can turn me around and it can face me whichever way I want. But if I focus on his provision and then I spin and I focus on his strength and I spin again and I focus on his glory, whichever way the world tries to face you this coming week, set your eyes firmly upon the cross. And when you spot, you keep your eyes there as your body turns and then you flip your head back again. And it doesn't matter how many times you spin, just keep facing the cross this coming week. Because the closer you are to the cross, the more you focus on his glory, his strength, and his provision. Then we can find a true contentment, and it's a contentment worth having. Let's linger in those moments of thanksgiving. Not a one-day feast, but a a life lived closer and closer to God, and further and further from want. Let's resist Black Friday or Black Monday or Black Tuesday where want is everywhere and there is an arsenal arrayed against you to rob you of your wants. And let us remember always that apart from him there is no contentment worth having but with him, close to him and with our eyes spotted and fixed on him there is nothing in this world that can take your contentment away. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.